You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Total Onslaught, Episode 28, with Walter Fite. Tonight's lecture is titled The Battle of the Giants, and we are going back into the Bible tonight. This is an expose of Revelation chapter 12, the book of Revelation by John. Revelation is God's protection from last day delusions. As we have seen, Revelation tells us exactly who the main role players are going to be at the end of time, who's going to be involved in bringing about these great delusions and deceptions, and how we can avoid them. It describes an enormous struggle between the forces of good and the forces of evil, and it's just a brief summary. The details of the war are given in the chapters prior to chapter 12 and in the chapters post chapter 12. So tonight we're just going to look at the struggle and we're going to pick up on one or two important little components and then we're going to go in the next lectures to the hub of the matter and see who's who and who is described. Well, the battle started not only in Eden, before that even, but Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. This is a fantastic new creation where God creates being that are male and female. And God said, let us make man in our image. There's a plural over there. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle, the earth, over all the earth and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. This is a brand new scenario. Brand new. Because here, God is creating an order of being that is to have dominion. None of the angels had dominion. None of the angels had been created male and female. This was a new order. The Bible tells us clearly that angels are not like we are. And why would God do this? You see, God was creating a new order of being who would understand the mindset of God even in the capacity of his creative ability. Because by bringing forth life and nurturing that life, we can learn to understand what it means to have the watch care of a loving God. If we bring forth children into this world, we know that we have to plant a hedge of protection around them. Love requires it. Doesn't that make sense? Love requires it. And so God had put a hedge of protection around his creation, which is known as the commandments of God. But God was misunderstood at the level of his creation because they believed that they were now subject to rules, even though they were themselves exalted beings. And so this battle arose. God's answer in part to this problem is a new order of being. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. He hadn't said that to any other angel. 
replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion. He hadn't said that to an angel either. God is the only one who had dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gave them a choice. God said here's a choice. You can choose to know the good and to practice the good or you can choose the knowledge of evil and have sadness, pain and death. Choice is yours. Free agents, you can choose. The greatest gift that God has ever given to anything in the universe is the gift of choice. Because without the gift of choice, we would be robots. And any love that we receive from anyone else would be by force or compulsion or programming, but wouldn't be by choice, making it meaningless. But the very nature of choice requires that we can actually choose. That means we can choose against God. And that is a risk that God took. But he didn't take it lightly. He was prepared to die for it. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which Jehovah God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So he questions the word of God. Well, he still does that today. He's very good at that. It's called higher criticism. We may eat of the tr fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Genesis 3, 2 and 3. So in other words, death would be the consequence because simply put, if you take it right down to its final analysis, if you choose not to follow the requirements of God, you will have suffering, mayhem, death, murder, illness, disease, all those things brought upon you because you separate yourself willfully from God. Well, that is your choice then. Well, Adam and Eve chose. And they chose not to follow the requirements of God. Genesis 3.24 says, So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden the cherubim and the flame of the sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. So man was cut off from the tree of life. Did he instantly die? No. He had so much vitality at that stage that it took him a while to actually die. So the death that we're talking about is not just the physical death, we're talking about total death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Not a transition from one phase to another, it's death, what the Bible says. And all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and then he died. Genesis 5, verse 5. He was dead. Well, did God leave man to this death? No. He had a promise for him, a solution. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed 
and her seed, he shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, was Eve in trouble from that day onwards? Well, Eve died sometime after that, and who is then in trouble now? Surely that is not a reference to Eve. So who is the woman? Well, we'll come to that in some more detail. A woman in the Bible, used in this prophetic sense, is a symbol of God's people. And we'll discuss this in a moment. So when the Bible speaks of a woman, a bride, then it is a symbol of those that are betrothed to God. That's his people. So in other words, I will put enmity between God's people and between thy seed, that is, Lucifer's people, Satan's people, and her seed, singular. Out of her would come the seed that would save mankind, and that seed, says Paul, is singular, reference to Jesus, and anybody who is in Jesus can have eternal life through him. He, masculine, the seed, the saviour, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So there will be a war between them. Now the Roman Catholic Church, not liking it the way it is, using the symbol of the woman as the church, changes it to mean Mary, who was not alive at that time, and wasn't going to be alive for a long, long time, meaning that, well, the serpent would have had free reign for quite a few thousand years, which makes no sense whatsoever. So that U.A. Rhymes online Bible says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, and she shall crush thy head, and thou shalt lie in wait for her heel. That's turned the whole gospel upside down. That has made somebody else the saviour. So right from the beginning, it seems, there was this conflict. So in Revelation 12, we pick up the story. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. Interesting. A great wonder, a woman clothed with the sun. And the moon under her feet. We have two symbols there, the moon and the sun. And upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. So the number 12 is significant. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Now Catholicism makes that literal and says Mary is going to have a child. But if you take it prophetically, that means out of God's people, the Messiah will come. That's what it means. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and we've spoken about all of those issues before. The dragon, as we will find out, is Satan, or Lucifer, the fallen angel. The seven heads, a reference to what we saw in the book of Daniel, where all the kingdoms of the world have seven heads if you tie them up. So over the course of history what the battle would be. And ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. So 
Lucifer is the ultimate ruler behind the scenes. The ten horns is a reference to the kingdoms. Well, here is this Roman Catholic webpage that we've read before, just to bring it to pers into perspective here. It is no surprise that the woman would triumph over the red dragon, for Scripture says so at the very beginning. Refer Genesis 3.15, which states, And I will establish a feud between thee and the woman, between thy offspring and hers. She is to crush thy head, while thou dost lie in ambush at her heels. So which version are they quoting? They're quoting the Roman Catholic version, right? They're quoting the Jesuit Bible version. Not even their own good news quotes it like that. Even the good news Bible has it right. Only the Jesuit one quotes it wrong. Strange that they should use it, or not strange. Understandable that they should use this to substantiate their theology. They continue to say, to Mary, the woman of Scripture and mother of the men, notice this, who keep the commandments and hold fast to the truths concerning Jesus. Well, that is a distortion of the text as well, because it doesn't read like that. But this is a quote, a distorted quote, from Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Very interesting. So they apply Revelation 12, verse 17, to those who honor Mary and keep her commandments. Is that basically what you're saying? Good. The church applies the beautiful words of wisdom. She, the glow that radiates from eternal love. She, the untarnished mirror of God's majesty. She, the faithful image of his goodness. Now, who is really the express image of his brightness? Jesus. So here we have a conflict. We have a conflict between two ideologies. Because Mary is full of grace, Luke 1.28, the church through Pope Pius IX in his Ineffabilis Deus, an apostolic constitution issued on December 8, 1854, confirmed the tradition, note the word tradition, they know it's not biblical, that held Mary as being conceived immaculate. So the Roman Catholic Church applies Revelation 12 to Mary. Of course, the reference is also that we keep her commandments because that is the battle. Well, the Pope can modify divine law, Prompta Bibliotheca, Papa, Article 2. And if we look at the Ten Commandments as they are given in the Bible, and we compare it with the Ten Commandments as given by the Roman Catholic Church, even their Bible, their official Bible has it right. Only their catechism book has it wrong. The original commandments given by God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Well, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the same. The second commandment, thou shalt not make for yourself any graven image or any likeness or anything in heaven above, on the earth beneath, shall not bow down to them, etc., etc., etc. That commandment is gone here gone in the Roman Catholic Catechism. So, the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, now here becomes the second commandment. You see that? Remember the Sabbath day? Keep holy the Sabbath day. 
is now the third commandment, where it was before. And then the rest are the same. Honor thy father, thy mother, do not steal, etc., do not kill, etc., all the way down. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not bear false witness. But they've taken out one, so now they have to divide the tenth into two, which is the thou shalt not covet commandment, which Paul clearly lists as one commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now please note how they have to turn it around. Because it really doesn't make any sense to say as a whole commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. That doesn't make any sense, right? So they've split it rather the other way around, and made the ninth commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Well, at least they acknowledge that the wife is more important than the house. And then, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. So they've split that round a little bit. Now, Protestantism in the Augsburg Confession is just a little bit more honest than that and leaves it in the right order, although the commandments don't make much sense then. So that's an interesting analogy. So one commandment is gone, and uh, one commandment, the day has been shifted. The Sabbath now here is not the seventh day, but the first day, and the tenth commandment is split into two, so that we have ten commandments again. So this is the law of Catholicism, and those that follow Mary must keep these commandments, as we will see in another lecture, which is quite an interesting little tug-of-war between two rulers, the God of heaven and the prince of this world. Well, we continue. The Catholic Encyclopedia admits it quite freely. The church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath or the seventh day of the week to the first made the third commandment, which although it should be the fourth commandment, so here they admit that they must have removed one, otherwise it wouldn't be the third one, right? They admit it. Refer to Sunday as the day to be kept holy as the Lord's day. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill, to live them out, to show you. And then he continues to say, not one jot or one tittle will by any means disappear from the law until all has been accomplished, till heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass from the law. So according to the Bible, the law stands forever. Roman Catholicism says, no, we're above the Bible, we change the law. Revelation 12, 4. And his tail which is now the serpent's tail, drew the third part of the stars of heaven. And if you look at Hebrew parallelism in the Bible, you'll find that the stars represent, in this prophetic sense, angels. So we can say that Satan drew one-third of the angels with him, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Out of God's people would come the Messiah, and Satan was watching the times of fulfillment, which are given in the book of Daniel, precisely. And he was looking and waiting for the deliverance of this child. And when this child was to be born, he wanted to destroy him. 
instantly. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And a child was caught up unto God and to his throne. In one verse, you have the birth of the Messiah and you have his resurrection and you have his ascension into heaven. All in one verse. But you can see it's a very masculine verse, although Catholicism would like to emulate it and therefore they have Mary's ascension into heaven. So she also dies, but is woken up and has an ascension into heaven. So everything is a counterfeit. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared of God that she should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Now if this is Mary, we have a problem. Right? If this is Mary, we have a problem, because how does Mary fulfill the prophecy of fleeing into a wilderness for 1,260 days, prophetically speaking? If we continue, and there was war in heaven, so it's a backtrack, God is explaining what happened, why there is this battle on this earth, and it says there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So there was a war in heaven already. Revelation verse eight, 12 verse 8 says, And prevailed not. So the dragon did not prevail, neither was their place found any more in heaven. So a third of the angels rebelled against the government of God. There must have been a battle for the minds of the angels. And I can imagine that Satan worked with all cunning deception that you can imagine. Insinuating hate, insinuating unfairness, and insinuating that he was deeply wronged as the main angel in heaven not to receive more honor and glory. Sad, sad story. He does the same today. Everybody has a hunger for glory, and that can only be satisfied if others are obsequious and bow down to you. That is when you get your glory satisfied on this earth, and that's probably what he tried in heaven. And Jesus, being the humble one that he is, never used his methodology. He never forced himself upon anyone, but just let his character speak for itself. And so it came to a rebellion. But he prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. Now Michael and his angels. Now who's Michael? The Jehovah's Witnesses will tell us Michael is an archangel. An archangel. But what does Michael mean? Michael. Look it up in any children's book for names. What does Michael mean? It means he that is what God is. Hmm. He, that is what God is. When God came to this earth as man, he was to be called Immanuel. God with us. Call his name Yahshua, Yahweh, the Savior. You see, the name has a meaning. You know, we today have a name and that's it. But in biblical times, the name had a meaning, a very special meaning. 
And so you find that names change as circumstances change in the Bible. Can you think of any such interesting cases when names change, when circumstances change? Didn't Jacob become Israel? Israel. Now, Jacob means the supplanter, the one who takes the place of. And he was the second to come out, but he took the place of the first by tricking him, of which he repented later, most certainly repented. But when he had found Christ, when he had wrestled with God for forgiveness, repented of his sin, then he was called Israel. He who had wrestled with God and overcome. See? Name changed because circumstances had changed. Now, Michael, he who is what God is. Let's have a look. Who is Michael? Michael is called in Daniel chapter 10, verse 21, your ruler. So he's the ruler of God's people. Well, who's the ruler of God's people? Jesus. But Jesus was in heaven before he came down to earth. Is that correct? Yes or no? Yeah, he was in heaven before he came down to earth. And he was not Yeshua, Yahweh, the Savior that had come to die for us. No, he was Michael, he who is what God is. Let's continue. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people. Daniel 12 verse 1. Who's the great prince that stands for us? There's only one. The Bible makes it quite clear. Jesus is the one who stands for us. But Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he argued about the body of Moses, Jude 9. Who has the right to argue over the body of someone that is to be resurrected? Who? Only God. Only Jesus has the right to do that. Did he raise Moses from the dead, yes or no? Absolutely. How do we know? Because Moses appeared to him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And how do we know that? Well, here he was resurrected. And who else appeared with him? Elijah. And Elijah never saw death. So one represents those who will be translated without seeing death, Elijah. And one represents those who will be resurrected through the power of the same Christ and have eternal life. Well, let's see if the Bible applies this word archangel. For the Lord himself, now we know that it's Jesus Christ, shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. John 5.28 says that it is the voice of the Son of Man. All right. So this voice of the archangel is the voice of the Son of Man. Then who is he then? Then he's God. You see, the word archangel can mean an angel, highest angel, but it also means the highest messenger. Now, what is the greatest message of the Godhood? The manifestation of the Godhood that can touch us and reach us and talk to us and communicate and make us accessible to God. So the greatest message that God has is himself in the form of he who is what God is. Michael. All right. So now we see that the Bible uses this word, archangel, for the voice of the Son of Man. Let's see if we can find this angel 
in the Old Testament, Genesis 48, 16. The angel who redeemed me from all evil. Now we have a problem if we're going to make an angel a created being. Right? Who's the only one who can redeem you? Jesus. So this redeeming angel over here is Jesus. Go further. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, Exodus 3 verse 2. Now who's that? Well, it must be the same one. By the way, if this was a created being, why did he command worship? Didn't he say, you are on holy ground, take off your shoes, and he worshipped him, yes or no? Yes. So here's an angel that receives worship. So this can only be God. This is not a created angel. This is one whose going forth has been from forever. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence, now there you have the nice nutshell, saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. Isaiah 63 verse 9. So Michael and his angels is Jesus Christ and the heavenly host. And then you have the dragon and his angels. So who is the dragon? The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9. Pretty plain and simple. There we go. Where did the devil come from? Ezekiel 28, 13. Thou hast been in Eden, in the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering in the day that thou wast created. He's a created being. Whether he likes it or not, he is a created being. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. So Satan when he was Lucifer, was one of the covering cherubs that stood over the Ark of the Covenant. Thou wast perfect in, the way, in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. A mystery. Why should iniquity come into Lucifer when he was perfect from the day that he was created? Why should it happen? Obviously he was created with what? Freedom of choice. So he's an order of being in the image of God because he has freedom of choice. And he at some stage chose to let jealousy and selfishness rule his heart. And thou hast sinned. What is sin? Transgressing God's law. That's what 1 John says. In fact, that's the only definition given in the Bible for what it is. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. And here we have pride. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom because of thy brightness. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities. So he started off his own church, if you like. Therefore will I bring forth the fire from the midst of thee, it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold him, and never shalt thou be any more. What will happen with Satan at the end? He will be destroyed. That's not what the Christian world teaches there, but this is what the Bible says. We'll have to look at that in some detail as well. So, what is masonry? High masonry now. And the secret doctrine of masonry do with this concept. They have to turn it upside down. Do you remember these quotes? 
Let me give them to you. The appellation Satan, in Hebrew, Satan, an adversary from the word Shatana, to be adverse, to persecute, belongs by right to the first and cruelest adversary of all the other gods, Jehovah. Wow. Not to the serpent, which spoke only words of sympathy and wisdom, and is at the worst, even in the dogma, the adversary of men. Okay, Secret Doctrines, Volume 2, page 388. Now I have those books, so this is genuine, it stands there, it's not hearsay. So what has the inner circle of Jesuit teaching done to the doctrine of God being the one who cares and loves us and saves us? What has it done to that doctrine? Turned it upside down. You see, they say God wanted to prevent us from knowing something. Yes, God wanted to prevent us from knowing something. He wanted to prevent us from knowing evil. Because he never wanted a mother to cry at the grave of her dead son or daughter. That's why. And he never wanted the heartache that we have on this planet. Yes, it would be a good thing if we never knew evil. It would be a very good thing. But unfortunately, we're living with it. So they turn it upside down. Now the good guy is the serpent, and the bad guy is Yahweh. Secret Doctrine, Volume 2, page 390. Therefore Jehovah was called by the Gnostics the creator of and one of the Ophiomorphs, the serpent, Satan, or evil. All right, so we've turned it upside down in masonry. And in the inner circle of the Roman Catholic Church, remember that it was formed and created by the Jesuit order, and we have a whole lecture on that, the secret behind secret societies. You remember that one? Secret Doctrine, page 418. Esoteric explanation may, however, bring some order in this confusion, because the Bible now says the exact op opposite. Let's look at it from the esoteric point of view, says Blavatsky, in which Jehovah becomes Saturn and Michael and his army. Isn't that interesting? So they also believe that Jehovah is Michael. Satan and the rebellious angels, owing to the indiscreet endeavors of the two faithful zealots to see in every pagan god a devil. Hmm, okay, interesting. Let's make it even clearer. Secret Doctrine, Volume 2, page 508. That Michael being simply Jehovah himself. One of the subordinate spirits at best. Okay. So, if we're looking at the story, then we see Michael, the one who is what God is, and his angels, fighting against the dragon who has been cast down to the, ser the serpent. They turn it round and say, no, the bad guy is Jehovah. But they are free to admit still, this is the strange thing, that it is the good guy who's down on earth here now. So they're admitting at least that he got licked up there and got thrown out. Well, let's see. Secret Doctrine, Volume 1, page 71. The devil is now called darkness by the church, whereas in the Bible he's called the Son of God, the bright star of the early morning, Lucifer. There's a whole philosophy of dogmatic craft in the reason why the first archangel who sprang from the depth of chaos was called Lux, Lucifer, the luminous son of the morning, a man, Vantaric Dawn. He was transformed by the church into Lucifer or Satan. 
because he is brighter and older than Jehovah and had to be sacrificed to the new dogma. Ooh, biting. Revelation 12, 7, 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. That's what the Bible says. You can choose whether you want to believe the one or the other. The Bible says he got thrown out. Even the inner circle of masonry believed that the one ruling down here now got thrown out, but they say he will be reinstated. That's not what the Bible says. Revelation 12, 10, and 11. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. So the Bible says, devil is down here, not the good guy. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. So here, Jesus came to this earth. He died for us. He demonstrated to us that God is love. There is no greater evidence than this. God is love. And you can believe their lie, or you can believe this. Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, that's the angelic host, because they must have had a long time of misery too. This war has been going on for a long time. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, that's the peoples, the nations, for the devil is come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. So God is going to limit his time. God is going to cut his Little experiment with sin, short. So when we look at these beginning verses in Revelation 12, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. That is the church of God. With the power of Jesus Christ behind her and the moon under her feet. That is the law and the equipment to fight it, the lesser light, we reflecting the greater light. And upon her head a crown of twelve stars. There were twelve tribes of Israel. There were twelve apostles in the early church. She being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Now, let's go and look at this woman in a little bit more detail. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. So Jesus is called the Son, S-U-N, of Righteousness. Now Lucifer takes the symbol of the Son, which is applied to Jesus Christ, and applies it to himself. He takes all the credit. He turns the whole gospel upside down. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the Son before me. Psalms 89, 36. So the sun is used as a symbol of Jesus, and Satan takes the symbol and applies it to his worship in the end. Psalms 89, verse 37, It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. A witness of what? It, what does the moon do in, in order for us to see it? It reflects the light of the sun. So the faithful witness, the moon under her feet, 
is reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ to the world. That's his people. Only his people can do that. Because Jesus doesn't have to reflect his glory. He is his own glory. So this is God's people. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. This is what we are supposed to be. Jeremiah 6 verse 2 makes it a little bit more clear. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate woman. Here's the comparison. God's people is a, are likened, compared to a beautiful woman. Zion, who are they? Let's just make quite sure. Isaiah 51, 16, say unto Zion, thou art my people. So, we have the parallelism. God's people have been compared to a comely and delicate woman. Isaiah 54, 5. For thy maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. For the Lord has called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when thou wast refused, says thy God. So is this Mary or is this God's people? It's definitely God's people. Hosea 2.19 And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgments and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. So we are married to Jesus Christ. The marriage is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his people. It's sad that marriages don't always reflect that relationship. But it should. It should. Husbands, love your wives as the Lord loves his church. And my God has never forced me to do anything. Never trodden me underfoot. Created me a free agent. Said choose. If you want to choose the one, that's fine. If you want to choose the other one, that's fine too, but I'll cry. That's all he said. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, not human jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. The symbology there is, the symbolism is amazing. The woman is the church. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. Revelation 12, verse 2. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and a child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So out of God's people would come uh, the Messiah. John 4.22, you worship, ye know not what, Jesus says to the woman at the well. We know, as speaking as a Jew, what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. God's people. So out of God's people would come the Messiah. Psalms 2, 7-9, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. In this day I have begotten thee, ask me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God will be the victor in this tremendous battle. Revelation 19.15 says, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, 
and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. God's wrath is not our wrath. It is poured out without anger. It is poured out with tears. Revelation 12, 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew a third part of the stars out of heaven. Satan is down here now. Stands before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour the child as soon as it was born. And when Jesus was born, he was ready. And he waited to have this child destroyed. And he sent out the Roman legions to go and kill every little boy that was in Bethlehem and surrounds. And the little skulls were everywhere. And today, even in some monasteries, you can find these skulls and they say, these are the children that Herod killed. And they mercilessly slaughtered. But God took his son and they fled to Egypt. But eventually, he did kill him and crucify him for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 And then he ascended into heaven where he sits on the right hand of the Father and he will come to reclaim his kingdom. And I pray that we may all be on his side. Now the adversary side, let's have a look at this. Hebrews 2.14 since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, <coughs> so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So the devil thought he had him beat. He thought he had him licked. And the greatest apparent defeat turned into the greatest victory of all times. So the Old Testament church was guided and protected by God so that it could proclaim and bring forth the Messiah. Revelation 12, 13. And the dragon persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Is this Mary? Or what did the dragon do after the Lord had been taken up to heaven? What did he do? He persecuted God's people. So the dragon, Satan, now goes for those who profess Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness. That's a place of paucity of people, not many nations, a wilderness, dry place, hidden to the solitary places, where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Revelation 12, 6. Now we've heard that one before. Now let's look at some Hebrew parallelism here. 1,260 days. If we go to Revelation 12, 14, we have the same symbolism. And to the woman, there's the woman, were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. So we have two times mentioned here. 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, but we have the same symbolism. We have the woman, we have the wilderness, and we have a time. What does that tell us? That it's the same time period. Prophetically, it's the same time period. 
I have appointed thee at each day for a year, Ezekiel 4, 6. So that would mean 1,200 prophetic days, making it 1,260 literal years. And we have these time periods in Daniel 7.25, time times on the dividing of time, Daniel 12.7, time times on half a time, three and a half prophetic years, three and a half times 360, 1,260. 42 months, 42 prophetic months, 30 days per month, that was the Hebrew month, 30 times 42, 1,260. 1,260, 1,260, time times and half a time, 40 and 2 months. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 7 times. 7 is the number of completeness. This power takes the place of God, gets it 7 times. Now we've dealt with this before, the 1,260 day period, when we dealt with Revelation chapter 11. So I'm not going to deal with this in detail. Suffice to say that the papal system officially commenced its rule in 538 and was officially ended in 1798 in an apparent wound when Bertia took the Pope captive and Napoleon declared that the rule of the papacy was at an end. Of course, the Bible says the wound will heal and she will once again qualify as a beast and the whole world will follow her. But during this 1,260-day period, from 538 to 1798, the papacy relentlessly persecuted God's people who scattered and hid themselves in the wilderness. Numbers 151 to 53, the tabernacle was pitched in the midst of the people, and John 1.14, Jesus, in the midst of his people, the tabernacle the way to salvation, Jesus the door, Jesus the sacrifice, Jesus the one who washes you, Jesus the light of the world, the intercessor, the bread of life, the one who shields us from the consequences of the law. That's the story of the tabernacle and covers us with his righteousness. That all stands for Jesus Christ. The church in the wilderness and the tabernacle in the wilderness. Beautiful parallels between the Old and the New Testament. So Satan's object was to attack God's church. He was furious. He had not overcome Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had been raised from the dead. He knew his battle was lost, and now he was raging. Who was going to be his sword? Revelation 17.3, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. We've dealt with that in detail. Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Revelation 17.5, we dealt with that in detail. The Mystery Babylon the Great, the city of Babylon, had its origin when God confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. The term Babylon in Revelation represents religious confusion and Bab al Babel, another portal to God, another way of being saved. So, what does the system represent? Number one, it represents the authority of man. Number two, the word of man. They change the word of God, they're the ones that are going to give the norm. The works of man, how to be saved by your deeds. The law of man, how they changed it eventually into human rights, and the traditions of man. 
Well, God says we must choose. 1 Kings 18.21, And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Is there a choice here? Yes, we still have freedom of choice, thank God. So this tendency to meet paganism halfway was very early developed. Upright men strove to stem the tide. But the apostasy went on till the church, with the exception of a small remnant, was submerged under pagan superstition. The two Babylons by Hislop, page 93. And so paganism came into the church masquerading as Christianity. We have had a look at the symbolism, the half moon or the sickle moon and the star symbolizing the birth of the Messiah that would empower you to become gods and live forever and it had the same system in Mesopotamia as they had in Egypt where they had the Trinity, Isis, Horus, Set. The Gnostics turned the whole gospel upside down, made us God and Jesus Christ the devil. The sun became the source of physical life, the serpent the source of spiritual life, and Asclepius became the life-giving serpent and uh, the serpent god. And in all spheres, he was the great healer. So in medicine, pharmacia, pharmacy, pharmacia means witchcraft. It's the same word. Word for witchcraft is pharmacia, the same over here. He will be the healer. So we have a mystery of iniquity, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, 7, and a mystery, Babylon the Great, Revelation 17, 5. So another system of salvation. 2 Timothy 4, 4, they will turn away from listening to the truth and give their attention to legends. How do you make war against the woman? Physically and spiritually. And the times of his ignorance, God winked at. I like this text, Acts 17, verse 30, because the question is always asked, what about the poor people who do not know? What about the poor people in Catholicism today who worship God according to the best dictates of their conscience? What about them? Are they all going to be lost? No. In the times of this ignorance, God winked at their ignorance. He closed an eye. He judges them according to the light that they have and according to their ability to do what is right given the circumstances of their knowledge. That's a fair God. I like that. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4.17 Oops, there's the flip side. <laughs> In other words, if you know what right and wrong is and you do it not, what then? Then it is for your sin. Then you become responsible. Well, this man, Constantine, he wrote the first uh, laws contrary to the law of God. And anybody who wasn't willing in the early times of Christianity to obey was persecuted but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the sword of their testimony, which was the word of God, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Revelation 12, 11. So these persecuted ones suffered under this tremendous attack of the dragon. So early Christianity was based totally and completely on God's word. And they believed 
that they were justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. There is nothing I can do to earn me brownie points with God. Nothing. Any good works that I have are a consequence of his saving grace. So I cannot buy my way to heaven. I cannot put the money in the box and my sins fall away. Right? Cannot do that. But that's what the church of the Middle Ages taught. So the divine system is totally the opposite. It's the authority of God. It's the word of God, the love of God, the law of God, the teachings of God. Now what does Robert Schuller say about that? He says, no, we've got it all wrong. We must get away from this idea that religion is God-based. It should be man-based. So aren't we back in the system of Babylon, yes or no? He's teaching a Babylonian religion. So he's part of Babylon. Well, his teaching is at least. So two very different systems of religion collide. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold, precious stones, pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abominations and the filthiness of a fornication. We did a whole lecture on that. I'm not going to repeat that. But this is what the system is all about. Revelation 17, 1, 2, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of this great whore apostate system that sits upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth, unfortunately, we saw that, when we did the United Nations lecture and the New World Order, have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made, made drunk with the wine of a fornication. And the whole world believes all these strange doctrines, which are not even biblical. Christianity became popular, and, well, it became a majority religion. They are as much heathen as they were before. Error and corruption now came in upon the church like a flood. Where is history? church history? Page 54. This is just a fact. Revelation predicted that thousands would be deceived as the false teachings of ancient Babylon entered the church. And why? Ephesians 6.12 For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We worship God, and if we dare to worship God, we have the ire of the serpent upon us, and, well, many people capitulate and rather follow him. But if you stay with Christ, then this is your battle. You will wrestle against these, and there will never come a time until you go to your grave that you will not face this adversary. But the good news is, you don't have to face him alone. There's someone who's mightier than he who already threw him out of heaven and will throw him out of your life too. And there's proof of that. Look at how many people in this world have been cleaned up because of the word of God. Yeah, they cannot fight against that. So the king of Babylon's word issued from his throne under the authority of the sun god, and that was law. Whatever he said was law. But the Bible says, and he's the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So two systems. Today we have a papacy that says all power under my feet, and we have Christianity, true Christianity, which says all power under Jesus' feet. And the two never shall meet except in opposition. 
there will come a clash. History repeats itself. Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, Exodus 24, 5. So they had literal ones. Today we have perhaps more spiritual graven images, but they're there. Notice what Ezekiel said of his time. Ezekiel 8, 16. At the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, and they worshipped the sun towards the east. There you have sun worship. So their backs were towards the temple, and God had designed the temples in such a way that they faced in the opposite direction of pagan worship systems. That's interesting. We'll see why in a moment. And yet, they turned their backs on the temple and faced east. Interesting. So their backs were there. And the sun was the foremost god with heathendom. This is an interesting quote. The sun has worshipped as this hour in Persia and other lands. There is in truth something royal kingly about the sun, making it a fit emblem of Jesus, the son of justice. Hence the church in these countries would seem to have said, keep that old pagan name, it shall remain consecrated, sanctified, and thus the pagan Sunday, dedicated to Balder, became the Christian Sunday sacred to Jesus. The Catholic World, March 1894, page 809. Sunday being the day on which the Gentiles solemnly adored that planet, the sun, the Christians thought it fit to keep the same day and the same name of it, that they might not appear causelessly peevish, and by that means hinder the conversion of the Gentiles. Well, this is what Roman Catholicism did. They just took it up. And the old sun worship is alive and living today. In Egypt, the sun was represented by a huge red dot. We'll talk about the red dot at a later stage, and you'll be surprised where it pitches up in the world today. And, of course, the birth of the sun god here we have the goddess, uh, Nut, giving birth to the sun, temple of Hathor. There she consumes the sun, and then she gives birth to him, and he is born. Now you have the same in the uh, Egyptian system over there, the sun being born, then she gives birth, and the sun god is born. Same in the Aztec religion in Mexico, the sun god being born by the woman. Here you have the throne of Sri Lankan kings. You have the sun over there as part of the worship system. The throne of pharaohs had the sun on it, and the Roman throne had the solar disk on it. So they were all pagan sun worship systems. If you go into Egyptology, you will find the red disks in the horns, and you have the lions support the sun disk and the horizon. That was part of Egyptian religion. So if we look at our days, Monday was the moon's day with the assimilation of the Anglo-Saxon and Scandinavian pagan gods. Tyr was uh, one of the oldest gods of the North mythology and identified with Mars. And then we have Tirzdach, Tuesday. Wednesday was from Woden or Odin, Thor, Thunder God in Germany. In German, it's Donnerstag. The word Donner means thunder. Of the early Germanic people, became synonymous with Thursday. Then we had uh, equated it with Roman Jupiter. Friday is named after Frigg, the wife of Odin. 
the mother of another pagan god, Balder, there you have all of those, the day of Saturn or Satur day, uh, followed by Sunday, the day of rest and recreation as it is observed today. The sun and myth are not. That's a UNESCO publication. So they're telling us today our whole system, our whole culture is based on pagan sun worship. If you look at uh, Clovian, he had the sun right there. And the sun symbols that the papacy uses today and the Masonic symbols go beyond anything that can be mentioned. There's a whole lecture in another series which is called The Wine of Babylon if you want to see all the symbolism in Catholicism that deals with sun, with sun worship. Isis Horosep, the emblem of the Jesuit order, means Isis, Horus, Set, the Egyptian trinity. And you can pick up all of these symbols in the basilicas. Very fascinating. The crosses here, the symbols of the birds, the symbols of the, the yantras, of all the pagan sun worship deities. And uh, this one is very interesting over here. This is the sun god Helios in the pagan tomb discovered in 1574 beneath St. Peter's Basilica. You see, the Vatican is built on a pagan temple site. In fact, every cathedral in the world is built on a pagan temple site, where possible. And there will be certain criteria that have to be met. They're also built, where possible, facing east, which is, of course, the opposite of what the Bible has to say on this issue. If you go into Vatican Square, you have the largest solar wheel in the world, the wheel within the wheel, emulating the throne of God, which is a wheel within a wheel. This is an eight-spoke wheel. It's called the solar wheel. And it is basically saying, this is the throne of God. Here's the symbol of Shamash. And you'll see it's two crosses, one with a spike and one with a wavy line. The wavy represents the female, and the spike represents the male. There's the symbol of Shamash. And uh, Shamash was, of course, the deity which is the equivalent of Pan. Pan was the god of the forest. Diana was his consort. She was the goddess of the forest. So if you want to look at your forestry department, go and look at its emblem, your own one. I saw it today at your forestry station. It's the symbol of Shamash. Very interesting. And uh, you know that uh, the forests are holy these days because Pan is there. And here's another symbol up there, a cylinder seal of Persian, with you have the symbol of Zoroaster up there. And here you will find it in Bombay being used today. You'll find it with Zoroastrian priesthood, which is alive and alive today. This is the system of worship. The flame is a symbol of the sun in Bombay. Here are the priests working with the flame, symbols of Shamash. Symbols of sun worship you'll find in Buddhism, you'll find them in Islam, you'll find them in the yin-yang system, the knowledge of good and evil, male, female, the ankh, you'll find it all over the place. Vishnu, Zoroastra, Quetzalcoatl, uh, here you have the Mitzotom, you'll find it on the Roman Catholic cathedrals, on the floors, everywhere. This is pagan sun worship at its best. You'll find the Chanuk with its one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine burning lamps. I was amazed when I was in Israel and I saw the big banners of the menorah with nine candles. 
And I thought, what's happened to them? This is blatant paganism being flashed on their walls all over Israel. The Trikalon. If you go to Hinduism, the Aleph, the number one, the first one, he has the sun symbols on it. Uh, Haudah, seat on element, decorated with solar motifs. Elephants in Hinduism. Aleph means the first one, the one. One is the symbol of Lucifer. If you went into the ancient religion, Horus was uh, depicted as, an, as, a, as a bird of prey. If you go into the Indian religions of the world, uh, that is also how they depict their deity. If you go to the Indian uh, witch doctors, the shamans, you'll see the solar sun worship systems on their back. This is the system of worship today. Nothing has changed. If you go to the Asante Empire, they have Anubis over there, they have the keys, the same as the papacy, they have all the solar systems of sun and moon and stars, and all the traditional dresses that you find, for example, in uh, the East Bloc countries, those are all symbols of sun worship. So here is a charismatic group going to worship in Israel, now what are these symbols around their necks? What has this got to do with Christianity? This is pagan sun worship, nothing else. Here you have literal sun worship today. This is in England, this is Stonehenge, and here you have the Druids. Notice how the Druids are dressed very much like nuns. Well, basically there's no difference except that most nuns don't even know that they have Druidish worship. And it's very, very sad. European sun worship rituals, jumping through the fire, something which God forbade. Druid ceremonies at Stonehenge, for example. Now, Stonehenge is a very interesting place. You see, at Stonehenge, you have this circle of stones. Now, originally, there was a passage leading up to the circle. And this passage consisted of giant stones. Well, later on, what they did is they covered up the giant stones and put a roof on it. And that's the basic structure of a cathedral. And behind ancient cathedrals, you'll have the circular garden. And if you go into the center of the garden, you will find a stone in the middle, which is the dot within the center, which is the pagan system of, you know, well, fertility and all those good things. And if you look in those circle gardens, you will find pans, you'll find dianas, you'll find the consorts, all nicely hidden in the gardens. I've been in a number of them in England and in Europe, and it's always quite fun to take aerial photographs to see where they still have the original circular structures. So today, when you go into cathedral, you have this long passage, and you have the circle at least as a window, which is known as the solar window, and the giant pillars which separated the side chambers represent the same as the stones of Stonehenge. It's also interesting that the great places of sun worship today lie on what is called ley lines. So if you took a line and you stretched it from Stonehenge, it would go through Paris, through Rome, through the pyramids to Mecca in one straight line. The principal places of sun worship. Fascinating story. Of course, in the cathedrals you'll find the gargoyles and all these interesting things. Solar symbols and feasts in France, summer solstice, jumping over the fire on the Feast of St. John, 19th century engravings, jumping through the fire, things that they do today. At the Feast of St. John, they still today 
light the fire, symbolizing the victory of the sun god. Today it's called the festival of St. Jean. And if you go into the Eastern religions, you'll find every single one of their little movements, their hand movements, their dances, are all sun rituals. And uh, you'll notice that this hand movement over here, where he stands like this, this is an ancient pagan symbol, and the papacy uses it as a blessing. If you go through Masonic rituals, you'll find that uh, certain Masonic organizations use it as well. Uh, know anyone who has to make an oath this way? Boy Scouts, for example, make an oath this way? Pagan systems of sun worship used by the papacy and all of these. So the dragon persecuted the woman which brought, brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. Can you see how Satan adopts all the symbols that God has for himself? He, co he copies everything. Basically, he's just nothing but a copycat. That she might fly into the wilderness into a place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpents. 538 to 1798. The Valdenses, the Albigenses, the Huguenots, they escaped from her wrath. As many as could, the others were relentlessly slaughtered. The Valdenses in the Valdensian Valley, faithful men and women of God, kept the lamp of truth burning. But their crowning offense was their love and reverence for Scripture and their burning zeal to make converts. But many of them had the whole of the New Testament by heart. Surely if ever there was a God-fearing people, it was these unfortunates under the ban of church and state. The sign of Vador discerning worthy of death was that he followed Christ and sought to obey the commandments of God. That's an interesting point. This was contrary to the law of God. So the Valdenses were persecuted, and this comes from the history of the Inquisition of the Middle Ages. This is historic work. Great numbers were driven from their habitations with their wives and children stripped and naked, many of them inhumanely massacred. They took the little children, they bashed their heads against the rock. Typical, read the Jesuit oath, and you'll see what they did to them. They herded them into caves and made fires and roasted them alive. They were really mean, mean to them. And many of them were slaughtered and captive. And the Inquisition can really talk about all that were heretics, deciding for oneself what one shall believe and practice. Thank God I don't serve a God like that. Therefore, by this present apostolic writing, we give you a strict command that by whatever means you can, you destroy all these heresies and destroy them from your diocese. All who are polluted by them, you shall exercise the ecclesiastical power against them and all who have made themselves suspected by associating with them. They may not appeal against your judgments, and if necessary, you may cause the princes and the people to suppress them with the sword. That's what happened. That's history. So the dragon persecuted the woman, and Pope Leo had this medallion printed or pressed where he has the woman with a cup in her hand, Fides, on the back. And today, there are just some remnants in the Valdensian valleys of how these people lived and what they did in high up, out-of-reach places. And the church proudly showed Loyola, the Jesuit founder, 
slaughtering the opposition. The two that are at the base of his sword are Luther and Calvin. They harried them out of the land. Johann Hus, he was one of the first heralds. First he was not allowed to say the Mass and he was only allowed to speak, which was a blessing. And from this very pulpit, all he could do was preach the Word of God. Marvelous. So all the liturgy fell away and the Word of God was made perfect. And he called the papacy Babylon, the king of Babylon. This was his original church. There was his pew. And uh, up against the wall, he had the poster of the Pope riding on a great horse. And then he had another poster of Jesus on a donkey. And he says, Who is mightier, the servant or the master? Interesting question. Well, he died at the stake for his troubles and uh, was betrayed. And here they hung up the bodies of those that refuted them. These are the Huguenot monuments. We've discussed those. So the Martin Luthers and the Melanchthons, this one the fiery one, this one the gentle one. Sometimes you need people like Peter. Sometimes you need people like John. Martin Luther, John Wycliffe, John Knox, Tyndall, Calvin. These were the great preachers. And the serpent cast out his mouth of water as a flood after the woman. So what did he use? He used the nations of the world to persecute. He used particularly France. France will have a tremendous account to give one day, starting with Clovis all the way through the Huguenot time, persecution of the Albigenses, the Bartholomew's night, the slaughtering of the French Huguenots. What an account they will have to give and the French wars, all of these things. But the earth, the unoccupied places, opened a mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Revelation 12, 15 and 16. Verse 15 said, and he said, Revelation 17, 15 declares, and he says unto me, the waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitters, are peoples, multitudes, Nations, tongues, we don't have to guess. So the nations were sent to persecute God's people, but the earth, where there was no water, opened up its place, so they fled. They came to the United States. They are living right here in this country today. The offspring of these brave people, they went to Africa. They started a new life. And their symbol represents freedom, but unfortunately with a bite in it. It's Masonic. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now, this woman fled into the wilderness for 1,260 days. That brings us up to the date 1798. And she flees into the solitary places, and the new world is populated. And Protestantism takes hold in the new world. And out of this Protestantism, a new remnant arises. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, with the church, and then he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. Now who are they? But well, here's an attribute which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
there's the clue. And we will have to find out from the Bible who this is. I'd like to know who is this remnant that makes the dragon angry, that keeps the commandments of God, and has the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Well, Daniel says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Wow. We are living in the very end of time. The woman of the wilderness is over. The dragon is now wroth with the remnant of her seed, they that keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But Michael will stand up before he can destroy them. And I will destroy thee, O covering cherub. Therefore will I bring forth a fire in the midst of thee, and I shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth. Ezekiel 28, 16 and 18. This battle between these two gigantic forces, Michael and his angels, and his church, the woman, and Satan and his angels, and his church, the whore of Babylon. Those two are going to come into a final clash. And it would be interesting to know whether both sides can identify the other. That would be exciting. What if the one side literally said, that's them? We'll see. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Revelation twenty-two fourteen. So it's really worth it to keep the commandments of God, not to earn your place in heaven, but because you choose to obey God rather than man. That's the crux of the matter. It's a question of obedience out of love, not obedience to gain something. To gain something. The Bible says, godly sorrow leads to repentance. But there is a sorrow which does not lead to repentance. What's the difference between those two? The sorrow that does not lead to repentance is a sorrow over loss, not over what you have done. A sorrow that leads to repentance is a sorrow that leads to the acknowledgement that I am at fault and I have a problem. And I am in need of a savior. And when I have recognized him, Jesus Christ, and I take hold of him, and am empowered by him to start cleaning up the act and doing what is right. It is he that does it, not me, and it is by his grace that I am saved and not by my works. So, yes, they keep the commandments, but not to earn their way to heaven, but rather because they admire and honor their Savior, their Redeemer. Two systems at war, a dragon and a woman, in white. And the attributes, they keep the commandments of God and they hold to the testimony of Jesus. Ephesians 4, verse 4 and 5 says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope 
when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Are there thousands of faith that lead to heaven? Or one? One. And only one. And tonight we will have to make a decision which side we are going to be on, either the one or the other. And of course we will have to know more details before we can understand the full wow, relevance of this mighty battle between these two ideological systems. The one says you will obey man, the other one says you will obey God. And those two systems are going to clash. In tomorrow night's lectures, we're going to put it on the table let the Bible do the talking, and we're going to go straight to the hub of the matter, and then we will see in the subsequent lectures exactly who's making war on who, what the final outcome will be, and what the intervention of God is going to be like. In the Bible, we're going to do those fantastic chapters, Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 14, 12 and 13 we've already done. We're going to do the final chapters, the restoration of all things. Don't miss it, because this is what the final answer is. Without it, you will only know what's bad, but you won't know what the solution to the problem is. So God bless you and keep you as you ponder these things, and see you tomorrow. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.